As we uh, continue this morning, I want to start out by giving you five numbers. Okay, five numbers. These are you know, not the state lottery numbers, but they are important numbers. We'll come back to them uh, later in the message. But for now, without writing them down, we're going to do a little memory trick here, a, a memory test. Without writing these numbers down, try to memorize them. Can you put them on the screen? All right. 34, 27, 9, 61, and 93. I'm going to leave it up for a number of seconds without writing them down. Just do whatever you'd normally do to, to memorize numbers. 34, 27, 9, 61, and 93. All right, you got them? It's easy when they're up there, right? Okay, a few more seconds and now you can take them down. So I'm, I'm curious about what everyone here thinks about your own memory. Like, where would you place yourself on a scale from below average to average to above average? Like, how many would say that your memory is below average? Like, okay, you know, you don't, you don't remember as well as the typical American, whoever that is, so uh, below average. All right, how many would say that your memory is, is average? Pretty typical, kind of right in the meaty part of the curve, you know. Uh, so that means if you haven't raised your hand yet, you've either forgotten the question <laughs> or you'd say above average. Anybody has an above average memory? Nobody wants to say it because they're afraid I'm going to call them out. So the human memory is a fascinating mechanism. Some people have the, the ability to remember like obscure data like the batting averages of every member of the 1984 Detroit Tigers, the last Tigers team to win the World Series, while others have trouble recalling what they had for breakfast yesterday morning. So we're all in this continuum somewhere. Um, if you talk to law enforcement personnel, you realize they might understand this fact better than anyone else because eyewitness statements can be notoriously unreliable. Okay, let's say that we are at Frosty Treats on 3rd Street. All right, that's a, that's a pretty good place so far, right? Okay, we're at Frosty Treats. We, we already have our ice cream. We're sitting or standing near the benches. You know, there's the fence there and then the wall of the third street, so we're the, the uh, third base bar. Uh, we're sitting there enjoying our ice cream. There's a car parked right on third street, facing north, so facing toward the dome. It's, it's in one of the parking spaces there. And we're just enjoying our ice cream uh, they, they now have Dole Whip, so, you know, you might be enjoying some Dole Whip. And a car comes down 3rd Street, sideswipes that parked car, and takes off. So somebody calls 911, the police show up and start to talk to witnesses. The first eyewitness steps forward and says, I saw the car, it was a blue Toyota sedan. I, I know it, I'm 100% confident. A second person comes and says, Yes, it was blue, but it definitely was not a Toyota. It was a Honda. Okay, a third witness comes. Uh, yeah, I agree it was, uh, it was a Honda, but it wasn't blue. It was more like gray. And then a fourth person, there's always a fourth person, who steps forward and says, no, 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 you're all wrong. It was an El Camino. <laughs> my uncle used to have one. This witness says, you know, my uncle couldn't decide whether he wanted a car or a truck, so it was perfect for him. I know what they look like. It was an El Camino and the officer dutifully writes down everything that people are saying and thinks, this is useless, what am I doing here? And this is the reality of human memory. 
we forget. We forget. There are things we can do to help ourselves to remember. Uh, Images help, for example. If someone asks you on Tuesday, two days from now, uh, the three types of vehicle that were mentioned in this sermon, you're most likely to remember the El Camino because you saw a picture of it and because it's an incredible piece of American engineering. <laughs> but, but in general, our memory is not as good as we would like to believe it is. So some examples. Just about every day, a certain unnamed individual in our home will say, where is my phone? I just had it, I just set it down somewhere. Has anybody seen my phone? Or maybe, maybe it's keys. Like, where are my keys? I'm, I'm late already, where did I put my keys? Uh, maybe you have trouble with names. Like, oh yeah, what, what, was, what was that guy's name again? Mark? It's like, no, it wasn't Mark, it's Kurt. It's like, oh yeah, that's close. Like, no, it's not close. Yeah, there's a K sound in there. You know, you, you know, we, we all have uh, different things. Uh, sometimes memory lapses are funny. And I think, I think this makes me a bad American but I love it when singers forget the words to the national anthem before, <laughs> before ball games. That, that, that's my national pastime. I'm just listening, waiting for them to forget the words. Uh, sometimes, unfortunately, a memory lapse can lead to tragic results. Uh, occasionally, we hear on the news about some parent who has forgot to drop off a baby at daycare. They go into work, leave, leave the baby in a hot car for hours, and, and we, we hear these stories and the reaction is always vicious. It's like, what kind of parents? Like, I would never do anything like that. And maybe our reaction shouldn't be to say never. Maybe our reaction should be to say, thank God I haven't done anything like that. So we forget. We forget big things and small things, good things and bad things. We forget names and faces and dates and details and birthdays and anniversaries. Half of my waking hours Roughly, half of my waking hours, I'm thinking, I'm forgetting something. Like, I'm supposed to be somewhere, I'm supposed to text someone, uh, I'm supposed to pay a bill. Anybody remember the five numbers from the beginning of the message? Yeah. All right, you got it. All right, if you got them, you are free to leave. This does not apply to you. (laughs) See you next week. Forgetfulness is part of being a normal human being in a fallen world. This is, it's part of our experience. And God, our creator, knows this about us. That's the good thing. He, he knows this about us. You know this about yourself. I know this about myself. And we can see it from the example of scripture as well. There are a couple of scenes in the Gospel of Mark that highlight this reality in a profound way. The, the first is in Mark chapter 6. It's in the other Gospels as as well, but I want to look at the version in Mark. So Jesus is at the height of his popularity. Crowds are following him wherever he goes. And why wouldn't they, right? He's a great healer. He he tells amazing stories that make people think about things in new ways. Uh, He makes the regular, ordinary people like us feel as though they're valued and understood and important. So the crowds are always with him. The paparazzi are always looking for him. They want to sell his picture to the tabloids. The Jewish leaders are always trying to catch him 
saying something controversial, controversial so they can bust him. And this day in Mark 6 is like uh, every other day, except that on this day, Jesus wants to be alone. He wants to get away and rest with his disciples. He's just heard uh, about the death of John the Baptist, his, his cousin, and he wants some privacy. He probably wants some time and space to think and pray about what he's just heard. The execution of John has probably stirred up within him some, some thoughts about his own death. Like Jesus knew that he was sent to die for us, and maybe he's wondering, is, is that how it's going to be for me too? And he just wanted to get away. So he gets in a boat and leaves for what Mark calls a remote area. Um, but I guess it probably wasn't very remote because people could see where they were going. They heard where Jesus was going, and they followed him on foot. They, they kind of got to where Jesus was going before he got there. And he stepped out of the boat, and he sees a mob of people. Mark describes them as sheep without a shepherd. Jesus sees these sheep without a shepherd. He has compassion on them and he begins to teach them and heal them. So later on that evening, he's still at it. He's, he, all day, he's been healing, he's been teaching, and he's still doing it, and his disciples come up to him and said, uh, hey, Jesus, not sure you've noticed, but we're, we're out here in the middle of nowhere, and we don't have any food. It's getting late. Why don't you send the crowds away into the villages so they can buy some food? Uh, I I think we saw a McDonald's a few miles down the road. They can go and, and buy some McChickens for a buck. When they're warm, they're edible. You know, it's a good deal. And Jesus looks at them and says, uh, no, there's, there's no need to do that. Why don't you feed them? And the disciples tell him, A, look at this crowd. There are thousands of people here. B, all we have are five loaves of bread and two pieces of fish. See, it would take a fortune to buy food for all these people. That's a lot of McChickens. And D, Jesus, you're crazy. Well, they, di they didn't say that, but they thought it. And Jesus said, oh, did you mention five loaves and two fish? It's like, yeah, okay, bring them here. Jesus tells the people to sit down in, in, in groups on the grass, and he, he takes the food and blesses it, and then the disciples start to pass it out. And the Bible doesn't tell us when exactly the disciples realized they were in the middle of a miracle. Like Mark doesn't mention it, John, none of the uh, gospel writers mention when they realized this was a miracle. And we have to remember, these, these weren't always the brightest guys. They weren't always paying attention. You know, now after 2,000 years, we can look back and many faith traditions refer to them as saints. If St. Peter and St. John, but... At the time, you know, they're just kind of not paying attention. But definitely by the end of the meal, they realized that something amazing has just happened because they can do math. They can, they can do the math. Uh, the Bible tells us that there were 5,000 men in the crowd that day, plus women and children. So what are we talking about? 10, 12, 15,000 people. And they all ate as much as they wanted. And that's a lot of food because people like to eat. And afterward, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftovers, like one basket for each of the disciples. Now, I would like to think, if I ever experienced a moment like that, where Jesus literally worked a miracle through my hands, that I would never forget it. I would like to think that 
I would remember that day for the rest of my life. However, Mark records this, this feeding of the 5,000 plus in, uh, in chapter six of his gospel. Two chapters later, there's another episode. Jesus is on a hill overlooking the Sea of Galilee. He's surrounded by crowds of people. He's healing them one after the other. And this time, Jesus calls to his disciples and brings them to him and says, I, I feel sorry for these people. They've been, they've been with us for three days. By this point, they've all run out of food. I don't want to send them away hungry or they'll faint along the way. And the disciples reply, this is in, in verse, or this is in chapter eight. They replied, Rabbi, did we not experience a very similar situation not long ago? And did you not miraculously multiply the loaves and fish to feed a massive crowd of people at that time? And did you not also provide a basket of leftovers for each of us? We believe you can do that again. We would want them to say that, but it's not what they said. The disciples replied, where would we get enough food here in the wilderness for such a huge crowd? Like, where on earth would we find food? At, at this point, I like to imagine that, that Jesus and his band of disciples have a documentary film crew following them wherever they go. Um, you know, he's, he's a, a charismatic leader, a great teacher, a, a miracle worker, so of course there's a crew following him. So it, it, the disciples say, where would we get enough food here in the wilderness for such a huge crowd, and I imagine at this point, Jesus turning to find the camera and just slowly shaking his head. Like this is in my head. So they, they eventually find seven loaves of bread this time, a few fish, and, they, and Jesus again multiplies the meal, and uh, Mark records that there were 4,000 men this time, plus women and children. And later in, uh, in chapter eight, Jesus asks the question that all of Mark's readers and all of us are asking. Jesus says, don't you remember anything at all? Don't you remember anything at all? We forget. We forget, and God knows this about us. So throughout scripture, we see God institute ceremonies and practices designed to help his people remember. The annual Passover celebration reminded the Israelites of the time when God freed them from slavery in Egypt. Other annual festivals commemorated God's provision. And there's even a weekly remembrance, the Sabbath, that reminded the people of, of their dependence on God. So God wants us to remember the good things he's done for us, the ways in which he's provided for us, the ways he has saved us. So, so we have uh, these annual celebrations like Passover and, and other festivals. And Jesus also commanded one-time memorials as well. And one example of this is in the, in the book of Joshua in chapter four. The people of Israel crossed the Jordan River for the first time. They finally arrived in the, the promised land after a 40-year journey. So at the beginning of this journey, as they were escaping from Egypt, God held back the waters of the Red Sea so the people could pass through on dry ground. Now at the end of the 40 years, uh, he stops the flow of the Jordan River so they can go into Canaan. These, these bookend miracles, they're, they're now standing in the territory that God has given them to conquer. But he tells them this, before you take another step, before you set up camp, 
before you begin plotting and planning, I want you to build a memorial of this miracle. So you and your children and your children's children will always remember that I am the one who gave you this land. So he commanded them to, while the, while the river was still stopped, he commanded them to go into the middle of the river and pull out 12 stones, one for each tribe, and build a memorial on the banks of the river, a memorial to God's greatness, protection, and provision. Because he knows we forget, and he wants to help us remember. Today we're beginning a sermon series called Do This, looking at specific things Jesus told his followers to do while he's away. And one of these practices, the Lord's Supper, or Holy Communion, was instituted on the night before he was crucified. Different versions of this event take place in, in the four Gospels, in um, Matthew chapter 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and John 13. Jesus has gathered with his disciples in Jerusalem on this night to celebrate the Passover meal, the annual remembrance of the time when Jesus miraculously freed the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. Jesus knows that his time on earth is coming to an end. He knows this, but his disciples do not yet know this. So try to put yourself in in Jesus' position here. These, These men have been with him just about every day for the past three years. They've walked with him mile after mile. They've seen him perform miracles. They've watched as he healed the sick and even raised the dead. They've listened to his incredible stories that make the kingdom of God sound like a real place that you would want to live in. And they've heard him challenge the preconceived notions and biases of the religious elite. But they've also witnessed the normal, mundane parts of everyday life. They've eaten with Jesus, they've slept beside him, they've shared stories about their childhoods, they've shared inside jokes that no one else laughs at. And in, in a matter of hours, it will all come to an end. So what does Jesus tell them? Like, what, what can he tell them at this point? He knows they're forgetful. He knows we're forgetful. So he gives them a way to remember. Let's read this scene in Luke chapter, uh, chapter 22, verses 14 through 20. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I've been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. Then he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. Verse 19, he took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. Later that night, Jesus was betrayed by Judas Iscariot, one of of the 12. He was arrested, and the rest of the disciples abandoned him. The next day, Friday, he was executed on a Roman cross like a common criminal. The disciples went into hiding, but two days after that, on Sunday morning, Jesus rose from the grave victorious over sin and death. 
He later ascended to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit to take his place. And miracle of miracles, the disciples remembered what Jesus had told them. They somehow remembered this. They remembered the events of the Last Supper. They remembered Jesus' words to them that night. And the early church instituted the ordinance of the Lord's Supper to help them remember. When we partake in communion, we're not only linking arms with millions and millions of other Jesus followers around the world who are doing the same thing today, but we're joining with all the Christians who have ever lived, all the way back to people who knew Jesus personally, who started doing this immediately after Jesus commanded. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. So we join together with every believer through history, and together we remember. So as we wrap up this morning, I want to look at three brief ways the Lord's Supper helps us to remember Jesus. First, we look back to remember his sacrifice. We look back to remember his sacrifice. We cannot take communion without recalling the words of Jesus in Luke twenty-two nineteen. This is my body which is given for you. When we eat the bread, it's a somber, sacred moment as we recall that Jesus' body was broken for us. John Piper said, The Lord's Supper is a stark reminder, time after time, that Christianity is not New Age spirituality. It is not getting in touch with your inner being. It is rooted in historical fact. Jesus lived. He had a body and a heart that pumped blood and skin that bled. He died publicly on a Roman cross in the place of sinners so that everyone who believes on him might be rescued from the wrath of God. That happened once and for all in history. Therefore, Piper says, the mental action of the Lord's Supper is foundationally remembering. It's foundationally remembering, not imagining, not dreaming, not channeling, not listening, not going into neutral. It is a conscious directing of the mind back into history to Jesus and what we know about him from the Bible. The Lord's Supper roots us time after time in the nitty-gritty of history. Bread and cup, body and blood, execution and death. We look back to remember his sacrifice, which was made necessary by our sin. Next, we look inside to remember his covenant. In verse 20 of Luke 22, Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. The old covenant told people that they could not approach God directly. The priests had to serve as mediators. If you, if you had something to say to God, if God had something to say to you, you had to go through the priests. The old covenant told the people that only by obeying the law of Moses could they gain right standing before God. And when they inevitably sinned, because we all do, they had to offer sacrifices to God and the blood of the sacrifice would atone for their sins. That's the old covenant. And Jesus is talking about a new covenant here. The new covenant makes the old covenant obsolete because Jesus has shed his blood as the sinless, perfect sacrifice. The old sacrificial system is no longer necessary. Jesus is now our mediator. We can come to him directly. When we put our trust in him, the Father credits Jesus' perfection and his perfect sacrifice to our account. So when we take communion, 
when we partake in the Lord's Supper, we examine ourselves and recognize that, that on our own we have no right to stand before God, but Jesus has paid the price for our sin, and as a result, we can stand before God as clean. So we look inside to remember his covenant. And finally, we look ahead to his promise. We look ahead to his promise. Verse 16 in Luke 22, Jesus says, For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. The Passover meal that Jesus and his disciples were celebrating there has, has four cups of wine. And based on the gospel account, it appears that Jesus is abstaining from the fourth and final cup. It's like in the middle of this meal, toward the end of the meal, he's pressed pause and is waiting, looking forward to the day when we will join him in his Father's kingdom and we can have that meal together. The promise of Jesus to his disciples who were there that day is that they will see him again in eternity after the kingdom of God is fully inaugurated. And the promise to us today is that we will one day see him face to face. So there's a somber, sober element to the Lord's Supper as we remember the sacrifice and suffering of Jesus on our behalf, but it's also a celebration. We remember his promise that, that this life is not the end. The Apostle John, who was there that day, recorded words that Jesus previ previously spoke in, in chapter 14. Jesus told his followers, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There's more than enough room in my Father's house. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am and you know the way to where I am going. This is the promise. This is what we remember when we partake in communion. We forget. People forget. It's, it's human to forget. To forget is human. God knows this, so he's given us the Lord's Supper, this gift of the Lord's Supper as a way to remember the sacrifice of Jesus, the covenant of Jesus, which gives us new life, and the promise of Jesus that we will spend eternity with him.